0: Have you thought much about persecution? Have you done much thinking about persecution? I'm not talking about persecution just in the general sense. But have you thought about persecution that you or I might face? Have you thought about personally being persecuted? There's a lot of serious and very scary stuff going on in our world and right here in our own country. Uh, It could result in a rise of persecution against those of us who are servants of God, trying to live for God in this world. Uh, Certainly there is that prospect or possibility that persecution could arise. Have you thought about it? Have you thought about what your response might be if we do end up being persecuted? Well, I think no matter what happens, a couple of things need to certainly always be remembered. First thing is that we wouldn't be the first people ever to be persecuted for serving God. fact of the matter is that God's faithful people all through the ages have been persecuted. And so if persecution were to arise and we, as the people of God in this present day, were persecuted for our faith, we would not be the first people who ever received that kind of treatment. Secondly, I think we need to be prepared to be faithful no matter what happens. Whether good times or bad, whether times of ease or times of persecution come our way, we need to be determined to be faithful. And in particular, in the face of potential persecution, we should have our hearts set that we will faithfully serve God. In fact, I would encourage you to be praying in that way. Even right now, while we still have times of relative ease and comfort and freedom, and we'd be praying that even if this is taken from us, we will be strong, we will be faithful. In our New Testaments, the book of Revelation was written to Christians who were suffering very intense persecution. Their persecution was of the kind that we have never known. Now, it might be that those times could come again. might even happen in our lifetime. But we've not known those kinds of persecutions. We've, we've lived in, in, in times of freedom and liberty. And we've been able to do as we please and practice our religious faith without interference. But the book of Revelation was written to Christians in the first century who did not have those freedoms and liberties. And to them, the Lord said this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Fear not of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you in prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Notice, even in the face of harsh, severe, horrendous persecution, the instruction to them was be faithful. Be faithful even if it causes death. Be faithful unto death. That's the Lord's instruction to persecuted saints, and his message to us would be the same. If we end up being persecuted, his message to us would be remain faithful, be faithful, be faithful unto death. And the Lord has made a promise to those who will be so, I will give a crown of life. There's the promise, endure the persecution, be faithful. There's a crown of life that will come as a result. In Revelation 17 verse 14, he spoke of this great battle between good and evil and he tells us, What the outcome is going to be. You want to know how this all turns out? The answer is very simple. God wins. In the end, God wins this great battle between good and evil that's been going on ever since the Garden of Eden. In Revelation 17, verse 14, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. God wins. But I want you to especially notice the emphasis on being faithful. You need to be on God's side. You need to be on the right side of this great battle of good and evil. And you need to be faithful no matter what happens. So our question for study this morning is this. What would faithfulness look like? What does faithfulness look like? If I need to be faithful no matter what happens... What would be the signs of that? What would be the indicators that I am in that range of faithfulness? What does faithfulness look like? We want to study that for a few minutes in our lesson this morning. Stop here to thank you for being out on this Lord's Day morning. We are blessed in so many wonderful ways, and it is a great privilege to be assembled together to worship God. And we thank you for being here to be a part of it. We appreciate you very much and the encouragement that you provide to all the rest of us. And to those who are visiting with us today, we thank you and we ask you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. And we're always open to your questions and we'd be glad to offer our assistance. If you need help, especially with Bible study, let us know how we can help you. So what does faithfulness look like? Well, the first thing that I want to point out is that there's a possible danger in equating faithfulness with just church attendance. Now, I'm using this expression, church attendance, in sort of an accommodative way. By this, what I mean is that you're just sort of going through the motions of being a Christian. Uh, This might describe someone who is, they go to church... Most Sundays, on almost every Sunday, or at least a majority of Sundays, you'll see them at church services. Now, if something else comes up, they very likely might miss in order to do something else that is of interest. They'll be faithful in at least church attendance unless something else interferes and they want to pursue some other activity. What I mean here especially is just the idea of going through the motions without real deep sincerity or devotion, just going through the motions. That is not faithfulness. Faithfulness is not that. Now, note that among those first century Christians that we've been talking about, there were some of those persecuted Christians who were uh, uh, not doing so well in the face of persecution. For instance, in Revelation 3, beginning verse 1, the angel uh, uh, speaks to the church at Sardis and said, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Notice, to this church at Sardis, he says, Thou hast a name that thou livest. In other words, in name, they were still Christians, but he said, in reality, they were dead. They were still going to church on Sunday. Uh, They were still going through the motions. They had a name, but in reality, the Lord knew that they were spiritually dead. So back in that time, when persecution was severe, some were doing good, but others were not doing so good. Where would we be? If we faced those same sort of times. But you know that's always been the case. It's always been a problem that some would just go through the motions. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 25 beginning, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. Now remember, these would have been very religious individuals. These would be, These would have been the leading religious people in their day. The scribes and Pharisees, but Jesus says they're hypocrites. He says, For you make clean the outside of the cup and platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. You see where they. So, how would you like it if you went to the restaurant after services this morning to eat lunch and they served your food and. When they brought it, of course, the waiter's kind of holding it up and you can see the outside of the serving container and it looks clean. But when they set it down in front of you, it's clear that the inside of that plate or saucer hasn't been washed at all. It's just filthy, nasty. How would you like that? Well, you wouldn't like it at all. But Jesus said that was descriptive of what these scribes and Pharisees were like. They were going outwardly. They looked nice. Inwardly, they were full of corruption. And so that has always been a problem. And just going through the motions, just looking good on the outside does not get the job done. And that's true whether we are enjoying times of peace or persecution. But again, in times of persecution, we especially want to emphasize the need for faithfulness. So what about another church here among the churches of Gal- uh, uh, the, the seven churches of Asia? One of them, Thyatira, is one that the Lord gave good praise to. Not totally, but in principle, He gave praise, and He actually gives a picture of what faithfulness would look like. It, remember, that's our question: What does faithfulness look like, especially in times of persecution? What does faithfulness look like? Well, to the church at Thyatira, He actually describes that. In Revelation 2, verse 19, Brett read this for us just a minute ago. He said, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. We want to use that verse as a text for our study this morning because in it, I believe we see what faithfulness is supposed to look like. First of all, he says, I know thy works. Works. You know... Unfortunately, that's become sort of a dirty word in religion these days to talk about works. Cindy's grandma uh, had a whole list of words that she said were dirty words and you shouldn't say them. And Cindy still can't say those words even to this day because her grandmother drilled into her that these were dirty words. Some of the words were obviously dirty words. You shouldn't say them. But she had some other words. I never did understand why they were dirty words. She said... uh Uh, For instance, Sidney will not even like me to say this word. Uh, uh, She thought the word gobs was a dirty word. You know, like, we've got gobs of food at our house. Come on over and help us eat it. She thought that was a dirty word. I didn't understand that. I understand why that's a dirty word. But Sidney can't say that word even to this day because her grandmother drilled that into her. I didn't understand that being a dirty word. I'll tell you, I don't understand works being a dirty word in religion these days. But it is. Boy, just as soon as the concept of works comes up, or you even mention works, boy, people get up in arms about that. It's not a dirty word. It, it, is, a, it is what God wants from us. And if we are faithful, we're going to be demonstrating works. In Titus 2, again, here, here's, here's our, our, our picture of works. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14... Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We should be enthusiastic or zealous about doing good works. In 1st Timothy 3, excuse me, 2nd Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. There's obviously an emphasis on works. James chapter 1, verse 25, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And we could multiply the verses like that, but I think you see that if we're going to be faithful to God, it's going to be necessary to be doing the works of God. And without that, we're not faithful. But he also says that he knew their love. And in this King James rendering here, the word is translated charity, but we know it to be love. And we also, although we're not Greek scholars, we also know this to be the Greek word agape. This is agape. And so to the church at Thyatira, he said, I I know your agape. I know the love that you have. We remember that agape love is selfless, sacrificial love. Uh, and it, it would include that kind of love for God and man alike to have sacrificial love. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So Peter is saying here, just make sure you do this. Make sure that you demonstrate this kind of love. I cannot go through life selfishly looking exclusively to my own wants and desires. I have to be consciously seeking to demonstrate agape love to others. To those first century Christians who received this instruction, this was not a new concept because Jesus himself had emphasized it while he was on earth and in his personal teaching. In John chapter 13, verse 34, I think you remember well. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Jesus said that this would be a sign of discipleship. Others who could see this kind of selfless love, this agape love, within our ranks, between one another, They would see this as a sign of discipleship. And I want to tell you, it's clearly also a sign of faithfulness. And so to the church at Thyatira, they were busy working and they were showing their sacrificial love. And he says they were also demonstrating their service. This word service in the text is from the same root word that we get our word deacon for those who serve in the office of deacon in the Lord's church. And we know that that office of deacon is, by definition, an office of service. We go back, very often when we're talking about deacons, we go all the way back to Acts chapter 6. Remember there was a great need in the new church at Jerusalem, Some of the widows were being neglected. And so the apostles instructed them to choose seven men that could work in that realm, that special realm of service. They're not called deacons in Acts chapter 6, but very often when we're studying about deacons, we use that text as a sort of demonstration of what the work of a deacon would be, or what it would be like, at least. It is a work of service. So to this church at Thyatira... The Lord commends them because of their service. Well, someone says, well, that's fine. But that's what we've got deacons for, right? Deacons are specially appointed servants. And so we've got deacons and the deacons can do that work. That's what we got them for, after all. No, that's not right. If you are faithful you will be serving too. It's not a work exclusively assigned to those appointed as deacons. It's a job for us all. And if we are going to be faithful, then we will be serving. Jesus established the very high bar of such service in John 15, verse 13, when he said, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Of course, Jesus did that, right? Jesus had the greatest act of service in giving his life an atoning sacrifice for sin. But that's the, that's the high bar that Jesus sets. That's the level of service that we ought to be willing to provide. In 1 John 3, beginning verse 16, Hereby I perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Now, I want you to stop there for a minute. I want to ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you actually had to make the decision I'll be willing to die for, for this brother, this this Christian brother of mine. I'll be willing. I'll tell you, I've never been put in that situation. My guess is none of you ever have been either, right? As we were saying, persecution could arise to the point where that might become such a thing. But we haven't been called to, to serve at that level yet. So... We, he laid down his life for us. We ought to be willing to lay down our life for others. But again, haven't been called to that, haven't hadn't had an occasion to even come close to that. But notice how this text goes on. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shut up his bowels and compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so, you know, again, would you lay down your life? I don't know. I've been asked to do that, but I have been asked to step up and help in situations where people had need. And if we have love, and if we're willing to serve, then we do that. Paul perfectly commented on this uh, on this idea of serving. He connected all the depth, all the dots, really. Paul connected the dots in Philippians two, beginning verse two. He said fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded having the same love being of one accord of one mind let nothing be done through strife or vain glory but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves look not every man on his own things but every man also on the, the things of others let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of man And being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Notice, Jesus took on the form of a servant. He served. And that's what we're called to do. And faithfulness demands that. So what does faithfulness look like? Well, it's going to look like those who are willing to serve. But it's also going to require faith. All right. Now, this is kind of curious, isn't it? Faithfulness is defined as having faith. Well, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, You know, I I always wonder sometimes when you look up a a definition of a word in the dictionary and the dictionary uses the same word to define the word that you're looking up. Somebody might quibble with us about this. You know, what, what about faith? Well, here... The Lord knew their faith. He said, notice, he said up here, I know, and he knew several things about them, and one of the things that he said he knew about them was their faith. Well, the Lord can read minds, right? He can see into our hearts, and so he, he very possibly might be able to do that just by virtue of knowing the hearts of men. But how would we know faith? How would we be able to look at someone else or they look at us and say, that's a person of faith. How would I look at myself and say, I'm a faithful person? How, how would we know faith in ourselves or in others? Well, James tells us how. In James 2.18, James says, Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. Notice, I will show thee my faith by my works. James says, the way that we demonstrate faith is what it produces, you know, what what the outcome of it is. You can say you have faith, but he says the real way of demonstrating faith is by what you do, and that that would be true of us too. So faith, that part of faithfulness that is described as faith, is is when we put it into action. In Hebrews chapter eleven, uh, verse. 32 beginning now remember we always talk about hebrews 11 that great chapter on old testament characters of faith it describes in every case it describes what they did by faith what they did and here's just sort of a summary of it in hebrews 11 beginning verse 32 and what shall i more say for the time would fail me to tell of gideon and of Barak and samson and jephthah of david also and samuel of the prophets who notice through faith Subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, fi- the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the enemies of the alien. And so in all those cases, faith, those were people, those definitely were people of faith. How do we know? Well, the way we know it, was what we see in their life. He goes on to describe, he says, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. It wasn't easy. Their faith faith in God did not make it easy for them. It made it hard in many instances. He said, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. The promise hadn't come yet, but it was coming. But they were anticipating it off in the future. And yet they remained faithful. And so again, the Lord commended the people in Thyatira because of their faith. Would he commend us? Another thing that was a part of their faithfulness was patience. The Lord says, I know thy patience. So we've talked about works. We've talked about active love. We've talked about selfless service. We've talked about obvious faith. That's all good, right? Everything we've said so far is good. But you know, of all this that we've said... We'd have to add the point that it can't be off and on, off and on, you know. What if you heard a fellow described, and he's described this way. Someone said, I don't don't really know what to expect out of that guy. Sometimes he's really great, but other times he, he can't be counted upon. Would you, would you say that such a person as that is faithful? He's really good sometimes. Other times you just can't count on him at all. Is he faithful? No, you wouldn't describe that person as a faithful individual, would you? And, and so we understand that this patient continuance, always continuing in faithfulness is necessary. In James chapter 5, verse 10, beginning, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering Uh, of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, have seen the mercy of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So James says that the prophets, those Old Testament prophets, are an example of faithfulness. Well, think about some of them. Think about Elijah. Uh, Think about Elijah as he withstood the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I mean, that, patiently doing the will of God when the odds were tremendous against him. Or think about Daniel when they said you can't pray to God anymore. You've got to pray to the king, but he's going to continue to pray to God. They threw him in the lion's den, but he never recanted. Those kind of examples. And, and, and James is saying, think, think of those prophets and think about their patience. That's what we need. If we're going to be faithful, we have to be patient as they were. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 19 Peter says, this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? I stopped there for a minute. Get, get the point of Peter's uh, observation here. So you do something evil and men take you and they punish you for the evil that you did. You robbed a bank. They caught you. They put you in jail. There's, there's, there's no honor in being, uh, if you patiently endure punishment that you deserved, right? If you did bad and you got caught and punished and you endured the punishment, there's no glory in that. There's nothing special about that. If, even if you patiently take the punishment handed down, you deserved it. But he goes on. But if when you do well and suffer for it and you uh, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow in his steps. Patiently enduring, even when we don't deserve it. That's faithfulness. Hebrews ten verse thirty six says, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God you might receive the promise. We need to be patient. Our faithfulness requires us to be patient, constantly enduring. Not off and on, not up and down, but steadfastly doing the will of God. Finally, I want to suggest to you that in the case of the church at Thyatira, one of the things commended in their faithfulness was their growth. Now, look at this. So up here he mentioned their works, and we talked about that. But he he mentions it again. He says, and I know thy works. Well, he already said he knew thy works. But here's what he's emphasizing, the last to be more than the first. And so he could see that these Christians in Thyatira were growing. We can't be content. If we're going to be faithful servants of God, we can't be content to be so-called just holding our own, you know. As we look back on the months and years of our lives, it ought to be obvious to us, to others, and, of course, it's obvious to God whether or not we are growing. I ought to be honest with myself. As I look back on my life, am I a stronger Christian now than I was this time last year, five years ago, ten years ago? Am I growing? Am I stronger? What would others say as they look to my life? What, what would, they, would they judge that I'm growing as a Christian or not? You know, the, Others don't have a perfect view of us, understandably, but they have some understanding about where we, where we are spiritually would others say that i'm a growing christian of course god's got perfect insight would god judge me as to be growing that my latter works are more than the former ones or the first ones in second thessalonians chapter 1 beginning verse 3 we are bound to thank god always for you brethren as is meet because notice your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other is abound, uh, aboundeth so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. I think it's particularly interesting that he uses the word exceedingly. Their faith was growing exceedingly. It wasn't that they were just making, you know, just fractional, tiny little increases in their faithful service. God, they were growing exceedingly. That's what we need to do. Paul... Uh, Paul's outlook on this is stated in Philippians 3, beginning verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. He wasn't saying, I've, I've reached the level, now I can, can just can, you know, complacently stay where I am. He said, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything else should be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this to you. Even Paul, when we stop and think about the life of devoted service that he had accomplished. Remember, this, this Philippians is one of the letters we call a prison epistle. So he's in Rome. Uh, he's, he's done so much. He's been on those three arduous missionary journeys. He has been persecuted right and left harsh forms of persecution, even to the point of death. Now he's uh, in custody in Rome, waiting trial before Caesar. Man, Paul, you've done enough. Surely you've done enough. What's Paul say? He says, not as though I had already attained. I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. I got to keep going. I got to keep growing. I got to keep doing all that I can. Paul's outlook is needs to be the outlook that we have. And so in this one verse here, remember this was stated to the church at Thyatira, but in this one verse, I think we get a picture of faithfulness. Would you agree with me? This picture of faithfulness looks like this. You work hard. You are sacrificial in your love. You serve others. You have an active, obvious faith. You're, you're patient, you endure, you don't, you're not off and on, hot and cold, you stay with it, and you're growing, you're getting stronger. That's what faithfulness looks like. Now I've got a question for you. What about us? What about you? What about me? Do we deserve to wear that descriptive of faithful? Are you faithful? Are you, uh, have you been faithful to the Lord? Does your life demonstrate Faithfulness. I think we can understand what it should be, right? I think we can understand what that that descriptive would involve. My question is, would it be fairly applied to us? As you think about that, and if you particularly realize that in your case it's not so, that you've let down and you've not been faithful to the Lord, as a Christian, you know what you ought to do, but you haven't been doing it. If that's the case, we'd urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, but you know the truth and desire to obey it, that simple plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins, if we can help you in your initial obedience to the Lord, we'd be glad to help. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.